All right, well, good morning, Salem. Great to see your faces. If you guys are joining us online, we welcome you as well. If you're in one of our venues, glad that you guys are here. We're at Salem, living lives of love, uh, right, uh, with God in community and on mission. That's a little bit about who we are. And some of that will come out uh, this morning, as it has been in in our series that we're in, Jonah, um, God's Word in God's World. But uh, before we get there, um, I, I just want to start uh, and just kind of point out that I'm, I'm wearing uh, the little Salem Youth logo here just because I wanted to express my own gratitude and appreciation uh, up here uh, to, to all of our teenagers who participated this last week um, and, uh, and for those of you who didn't. But just such a great job. You guys did such a wonderful, wonderful job and I'm super thankful for you. And, uh, and just as a senior pastor, you know, one of the things um, that is always a burden on my heart uh, is that, that we as a church are called to embrace um, being a next gen. Like we're called to that Psalm 78 to, to pass the torch to the next generation. And so we want you to know that, that we love you, that you are an integral part uh, of Salem, but also the mission of God. You guys can do things that us older people cannot do. And so we're so thankful uh, for, uh, for you. So um, how many of you guys have a picky eater in the home? Okay. Quite a few, uh, maybe uh, at least a third or so of people raising their hands. Uh, I would not uh, la- uh, classify uh, myself as a picky eater. There are a few things that I, that I don't like, um, uh, but I do have some quirky habits that my, that my wife likes to make fun of. Um, one of which is uh, the, the pickle jar. So we have at home in the fridge this brand new uh, pickle jar, like Clausen, that she got from Costco or whatever. And, uh, uh, and I like pickles, you know, just by a normal amount. I don't love them, but I will eat them. Uh, but I will only eat them until, uh, for whatever reason, there's o- until there's one left and I won't eat it. <laughs> uh, you get to the last pickle in the pickle jar and there's just something in my mind. I don't, and in my, and I just like, I don't know, it's like gag reflex or whatever it is. Like, I think I'm, it's like oversaturated with pickle juice. It's been in there the longest. I'm thinking the poor last pickle. I don't, I don't know what it is, but I won't eat it. Um, and uh, Nikki likes to make fun of me, as well she should. It's a, it's a silly thing. Uh, but it's the same thing with sour cream. You get to the bottom. Like, when you, when you open a fresh sour cream or a Dean's Dip, and it's got that crisp top, and you're like, oh, man, that's the way it's supposed to be. But then you get to the bottom, and it's like... It's just, it's just like watery and gross. And like you get to the bottom, I'm like, I'm, I can't, I'm out. I can't do it. And there's just something about that. So for me, as I think through this, like if, if what happened or what would happen if the only thing that was left in my fridge was the last remaining pickle? Like what if, so what if me, so like every time I see that pickle, I go, man, I, like I'm hungry, but I, but I really don't want that. And so I would scour through my fridge for anything other than the last pickle. But what happens when, when all that stuff is gone? When, when all those things are removed from me and I open up my, my fridge and all that there is is a pickle? And I would probably choose not to eat it for, for quite a while and I would just leave it and leave it and leave it. But I guarantee you that if I don't eat for three or four days, guess what? My perspective is going to change because it's the last thing that's available for me and it's going to taste so, so, so good when I finally choose to eat it, because I'm not hungry. And I think that what's true, uh, what we'll find in our story this, this morning in Jonah in chapter two, is that God has this way at times, although not always, he has this way about him of removing things from our life until only he is left. Because when he's the only thing that's left, guess what? He is super, 
super delicious. He is super, super sweet and satisfying in all of the right ways. And so this morning, uh, we're going to be in uh, Jonah chapter 2. And uh, if you haven't been with us for a while, or if this is your first time uh, joining us, uh, I just want to kind of recap, because we've been out of Jonah for a couple of weeks, and so uh, just to remind us where we're at in this story, right? So the, the story starts with uh, the creator God, Yahweh, is his personal name, and he, he's talking to this guy named Jonah, and he says, I want you to come up to this place called Nineveh, which he describes as the great city. And this is really is a grouping of people uh, who have no relationship with God. They don't know about him. They don't know anything about him. And so God wants to bring this good news message to these people. And he calls Jonah. And Jonah is a prophet. Uh, and his name actually means dove, son of faithfulness. And so he seems like the perfect character for this job, the perfect person uh, for uh, this job. And yet what does Jonah do uh, is that he, he actually... Uh, comes down to, you know, to this port city called Joppa, and he gets on a ship, uh, and I'm just going to draw out our nice little ship here, okay, with the full intention that he's going to go all the way over here to the southern tip of Spain, to this town, this city called Tarshish. And so really for Jonah, it's this full rejection, not only rebellion, but rejection really ultimately of who God is and what his plan is for Jonah. And so uh, if you ever watch a movie um, when, you're, when you're, you're thinking of the main character, and there's only one character in, in all of the movie that can really salvage or redeem the story. They, they have the, the tools uh, and the gifts to save the people. Uh, but, in, but you watch them and they have this choice sometimes and sometimes they actually, they turn and they go and do the opposite thing. And so when you're watching the movie, you're thinking, no, you're, you're going the wrong way. Like the people that you need to save are over here and yet what they end up doing is sometimes going here before they have this moment where they, they, they turn, right? And so how the story kind of goes is that Jonah is on this ship with these, these sailors and they're met by some resistance, right? Like God's wrath enters into the story and saying like, like this is not okay. And so he hurls this great wind at Jonah and the sailors. That's the word. He hurls this wind. And so the way that the sailors try to combat this is that they, they hurl back. <laughs> and what they do is they, they throw in, they hurl all of their cargo into the ocean thinking that maybe they'll be able to either maneuver the storm or escape the storm or the storm will calm down or whatever it is. And yet not, nothing works. So they find then that after this, right, the only way to actually get out of this is to hurl Jonah, this person, into the water. And as they do that, then God's justice and righteous uh, wrath is fulfilled and, and the storm calms. And so really where we leave off or where we left off this last week is that Jonah is swallowed by a big giant fish. This was, I guess, over three, three weeks ago. And so that's kind of where we're at in this story. Uh, and so we find Jonah in the belly, the cramped belly of a, of a whale, okay, in the, in, the, in the belly of this fish. And so 
Here's what it says in chapter 2, verse 1. It says, this is where we find out, what is Jonah doing uh, in the belly of the whale? And it says, then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish. So this is what we find. We find Jonah, um, probably rightfully so, as probably all of us, if, if you had somehow been swallowed by a giant fish, like, can you imagine the scenario? And you wake up and you're like, holy cow, I'm still alive. Like, what's happening here? What would you do? You would probably pray. And so this we find Jonah doing is praying in this moment. And so what Jonah is actually going to do is he's going to compose this very intricate and beautiful uh, poem in Hebrew. And it has parallelism, it has couplets, it has all these really neat features uh, about Hebrew poetry. And it's just a phenomenal and well-written poem, which is kind of a comical thing, right? Because if you think about it, there's tons of comedy in this story. Remember, everything about this story is really upside down. It's not the way that it should. And so the author uses comedy to draw us in. And so we begin to picture Jonah in the belly of a whale. How does he write this thing? Does he like start a fire? <laughs> like he like finds some random salvage stuff and he starts a fire and then he finds, reaches to the side and there's a, a, a piece of parchment <laughs> and then does he find like a, a, a fish bone and like stab a squid and start writing out this in this intricate, it's just bizarre. But that's the form that this prayer actually takes, okay? Uh, but that at the end, in, in um, this is 10 verses, and so you start with verse 1, which is narrative, and then in verse 10, you have some more narrative, and it says this. It says, and the Lord spoke to the fish, and then there's this, again, this comical piece, right? It vomited Jonah in this massive mess and grossness out upon the dry land. And so what starts with Jonah in, in the, the belly of a fish trapped in his own sin and the consequences of his own sin starts there. By the end of this passage, he's actually out on dry land. And so then whatever happens in this poem, whatever happens in these, these verses in between, in order for God to release Jonah from this prison, so to speak, it must have been a very, very powerful thing, right? It must have been a very powerful thing. And so that's what we want to unpack uh, this morning. But here's the deal. The beauty, I love this, I think this line is true as we think through this. The, here's what's true is that um, the beauty of the story of Jonah is that Jonah deserves what? Death. For everything that he's done, Jonah deserves death. He really does. He deserves death. And yet, what we're going to find is that Jonah, instead of death, finds deliverance. But not because of his own doing. This is all about the, the nature, the person, and the work uh, of Yahweh. Uh, and our first clue is actually in. So how does that happen? How is it that, that this, all of this kind of takes place? Um, the first clue is is actually in chapter two, verse one, um, and it's the word his, right? Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God. And you're thinking, well, that's just a very small, insignificant word. But the reality is when you look back, and the, I don't have these on slides, but if you were to look back in your Bible at um, chapter one, verse five, uh, when you find all these sailors in the midst of this crazy storm, it says, what do they do? They, they prayed out to their God. It's this possessive pronoun. Uh, they cry out to their God. But when it comes time for Jonah to give a, an answer or a reason for what's happening, uh, he says, he says this, I worship Yahweh, the creator God, but there's nothing about this that's possessive. 
It's very much this intellectual piece. And so really there's this theological shift that begins to happen and this clue in chapter 2, verse 1, where he says it's now his God. Because formerly it was just Yahweh, God, the creator God, and now all of a sudden it's his God. And so it moves. It's as if the author is hinting to us that Jonah is making this transition from an intellectual understanding of who God is to a very personal and relational view, experience of who Yahweh is. And that's something that we all wrestle with, right? That's part of our process and our growth is that we learn things about God, but it takes time as we begin to experience and learn through our experience just the goodness of who he really, who he really is. So there's this shift, right, from intellectual to personal type of a thing. So uh, part of what the author is also doing here is that he's setting up a contrast for us as readers and as listeners to follow because now all of a sudden Jonah is in this, this tiny cramped space. But, but if we remember, uh, we go back just a few verses earlier, where do we find Jonah? We find Jonah like, almost like in the titanic, the titanic pose on, on the front of the ship, right? Like he is experiencing total freedom in his life. Like he is, he is just, he is being disobedient in everything and it's almost as if Jonah in this moment could say to himself, I can't believe Yahweh let me get away with this. Like I have total freedom, I can do whatever I want and I've got the wind flapping through my hair, that's something I can only imagine, you know, but like the total freedom, the geography of the world is open to me, right? So there's all this freedom and yet in a real quick turn of events, what happens is he goes from vast freedom to this tiny cramped space to the belly of a whale, right? So as I begin to think through this, I go, okay, how can I, how can I illustrate this? Um, this is a bag from uh, Nikki's grandpa's house because when uh, he was moving out of his house, he said that we could stop by and kind of just pick different things. And so this was, this was our form of transport. You know, we took it from his house and we just filled this bag with stuff. Uh, and as I emptied it out this morning, you know, it had hoses and like shearers and all these, shearers is probably the wrong word, that sounds like sheep, um, like just clip clippers, things like that, just tons of random things, okay? Um, which is kind of, it makes me think about what it would be like to be in the belly of a whale or in the belly of a fish. Like what would you find in there? Like all the random things that you would find. Uh, and so as I begin to think through this, you know, um, I know this is bizarre, it's strange. I get it. I get it. I get it. But if I were to try and put myself into this thing, just imagine Jonah. Right? So Jonah goes, Jonah goes, this is super uncomfortable. Um, my knees are like touching my chest, which just is demonstrating how much I need to stretch. Um, what if I did the rest of the message from in here, right? That's, this is Jonah, Jonah in, in the middle of the fish, right? Can you imagine just like what Jonah is actually wrestling with in this moment? He was just experiencing the total freedom of life and sin. And only in this quick turn of events does he, does he begin to see just how just dangerous his sin is. And it's in a space like this that, that if this were you or if this were me, what would we do? We would pray. We would cry out to God. We would think like, oh man, <coughs> yep. it's really not a good plan actually probably. Um, but we begin to 
put ourselves in, in the shoes of Jonah and to think what it would be, actually be like to be in the belly of some giant fish. And it's dirty, and it's gross, and it's dark, and it's cramped, and it's in the space that we cry out. And, and here's the reality, is that for many of us, even though we wouldn't have maybe thought about it this way, God has led us in certain times and in portions into these types of spaces, into these dark seasons in life, these painful seasons, painful moments that we, there's nothing funny about being in the belly of a fish, like in that space. Like for us, like we go, man, like that's just hard. There's, there's, no, there's no joy when we are stuck in the pain of our sin and we cry out. And it's sometimes that God leads us to this moment because it's, it's when our knees are touching our chest and we're, and we're just sinking and sinking and sinking that God says, that Yahweh says, hey, guess what? When I'm the last thing that's left, you will begin to understand just how awesome I am. And sometimes God does this. He doesn't do it all the time, but sometimes he does do this. And so in verse uh, two, as we start this poem, this is really just kind of the summary of God's or Yahweh's answer to Jonah's prayer. Because that's the good news here. We start from the beginning. Guess, guess what? God is going to answer Jonah's prayer. He says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Right? That's the good news, is that God answers prayer. In this, in this verse, what does it say? It says that he cries out from the belly of Sheol. The word Sheol uh, is kind of like uh, this reference to the realm of the dead. And so really, it's as if Jonah is saying, now we know Jonah's not dead, right? He's, he's not dead yet at all. He's very much alive, and yet what he's saying is that it feels inevitable, that what I'm going through is, is like death, it's bringing me to death. And so for us, sometimes in life, we have these circumstances that we're going through. And we could describe those circumstances, but, but, but somehow that falls short. Because here's what's going on in my life over here in this box, and yet this is how it's really making me feel. And we have a hard time communicating the tension between those two boxes. And we just don't understand how to help people understand really what we're really going through. Like, here's what's happening, but gosh, can I just tell you, I just, this feels like death. I just, I just feel so wrong, so, so dead inside. It's leading me to a really, really bad place. And so for us then, uh, part of the tension is, is that when we get into this moment, we have a hard time not only communicating it, but we have a hard time reconciling this even internally in our own heart. Because for us, is that when we look at these boxes, we would think that if God heard me, if God answers prayer, guess what? I wouldn't be where? I wouldn't be in the bag, if God listens to prayer and if he hears me, I wouldn't actually be in the bag. And so, so Jonah kind of starts in verse 3. Look what he says. He says, for you, not me, he says, you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and billows passed over me. And you go, okay, Jonah, let's hold on. Let's back up a sec. Back up a second, okay? So here we go. Like, whose choice was it to go to Joppa? Jonah's. Whose choice was it to get on the boat? Jonah's. Whose choice was it to flee to Tarshish? Jonah. Whose choice was actually to throw you into the water? Jonah. Right? This is everything about this bag, everything about this deep, dark place in Jonah's life is, is a consequence of what? Jonah. This is not Yahweh. 
Yahweh's like, he's, he's like, you've brought me to the end, the end of the rope here. The only way I can help you is to take you down. But this is, this is of your own doing. Um, but if you begin to picture, picture with me for a second what it would have actually have been like to be Jonah in this moment. Because this is, this is hard. This is, this is a hard part of the story as we begin to think about what it would have actually been like with all of the waves and the billows. Because so, remember, right, the, the people in the boat, like they would have been long gone. They, like, they move, they head back to land, they, they do their temple sacrifices to Yahweh, they do all that. But meanwhile, Jonah was still doggy paddling in the middle of the water and he's fighting the waves over and over and over, fighting the waves. And how hard and challenging that actually is. Many, many, many years ago, um, probably 10 years ago, I was uh, uh, doing a youth trip and uh, we took uh, maybe 100 or so high schoolers down to like Flaming Gorge and we had rented four houseboats and we were going to spend a week on the lake and it was really, it was going to be an awesome, awesome trip wrestling with Jesus together. Well, I was on the last houseboat and getting, getting us launched off and making sure nobody was left behind and, and, uh, and all that stuff and and so here I get, uh, we get going, and it's this incredibly, incredibly windy day. Just chop, 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 chop. I mean, slapping against the side of the houseboat, really hard to maneuver. It was very, it wasn't, actually, it wasn't even that safe. And so here's uh, one of my volunteers. Uh, we're just going to call him Tim, okay? So just for sake of uh, safety. Um, Tim is a super athletic uh, college baseball star, okay? Tim goes to the front of the houseboat uh, with his cowboy boots, and kicks him up on the railing and takes his cowboy hat and pulls it down over his head and he just is soaking up the experience. And it's really, really neat. Until a gust of wind took his cowboy hat and blows it into the water. Now Tim, being an athletic guy, what does he do? In his early 20s, into the water. But because of the waves, chop, 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 chop. I mean, like it took him probably... 10, 15 minutes just to get to his hat. By the time he got to his hat, guess what? He had nothing left. Because it's so hard and painful to go against the waves. And so here I am trying to maneuver this houseboat, trying to get to him, and I can't do it because the waves, it's just not working. And so at one point, I just, in panic, I yell. I said, Tim, are you okay? And I just remember seeing the waves go over his head, and I watched him go down, and then I watched him come up and just water out of his mouth. And I just lost it. I was like, we're, we're, this, we're done for. This started this trip and he's going to sink. And so I just, without thinking, I grabbed two life jackets and David Hasselhoff into the water. Uh, as, and I'm not a swimmer. And I just, boosh, just booked it as much as I could and brought him a life preserver. And so everything worked out okay. But, but it was crazy as I saw him in that moment because what I, what I saw was the billows and the waves just constantly crashing, crashing, crashing. And... As time went on, Tim had no ability to fight. And he was moments away from just sinking. And so you begin to picture Jonah in this moment because the boat is gone. There's nobody there to rescue him. There's no houseboat. There's no life preserver. There's none of that. It's just Jonah doggy paddling, doggy paddling, fighting the waves, fighting the waves, losing ounces of energy at every single piece. And we begin to get a picture of this for us, right? This is a little bit about who we are, right? And yet, guess what? Whose choice was it to jump into the water? It was Tim's, <laughs> 
He put himself in that position in the same way that Jonah did, except without any form of rescue. And so it's in this space where Jonah would have been bouncing or really just bobbing and just trying to keep his head above water that something begins to turn in Jonah's heart. And look look at this in verse 4. He begins to talk to himself. He says, then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet, right, here's the hope piece. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. So if you remember the story, right? Jonah, a long time ago, the moment he boarded that ship and was headed to Tarshish, he was leaving Jerusalem and the temple far behind. Everything about who God was, this rebellion and rejection of God, including the sacrificial system, which at the time was the only way to bring about the forgiveness of sins. And so it's in this moment, as he's splashing, that Jonah begins to turn. He begins to see that there's something wrong and he embraces, it's like he re-diverts his gaze back over to Jerusalem and reminded of the temple and the need for sacrifice. Now you might think in this moment, if this were you and me, as we're going up and down, we might say, God, I have learned my lesson and I'm, I'm ready to be saved. However you're gonna do it, save me. And this is oftentimes where we picture the fish entering into the story because we think of Jonah bobbing up and down and it's like this big fish just kind of comes and scoops him off of the top of the water. But guess what? That's not the way it actually is. That's not what the text tells us. And this is where this gets even more painful because God has a work to do in Jonah's heart and in order to do that, he has to let him sink. So check out verse five. It says, the waters, just imagine this. Imagine you're Jonah. The waters closed in over me to take my life. So so you're Jonah, and you're fighting as much as you can, but all of a sudden, you know that your energy is gone. There's nothing you can do. And you get to that final moment as your head pops above the surface, and you grab your last big intake and inhale before you know your body is just going to sink and drown as the, wa- the waves and the billows push. And so you're Jonah and you're watching the light descend the more you go down and the more you go down and the more you go down. And you begin to see how incredibly painful and hard this moment would be for Jonah who says, this is going to take my life. Apart from any type of divine rescue, he feels he's totally, totally done. He's done for. He he even says um, that there are weeds that are wrapped around his head. Where do you find weeds? Do you find them at the top? No, you find them at the bottom. And so, so he's sinking all the way down, and we're going to talk about that in verse 6 here in a second, but, but gosh, he's going down, and like he's just so trapped, and he's just covered, and he's entangled, and you begin to get this picture of the mess that Jonah has really put himself in. And this is the reality of sin. Which, by the way, that word re, weeds, is actually in the Hebrew, it's the word suf, S-U-F, um, which is the same word for the word read or read. So if you go back to the story of Exodus and you remember uh, when God brings his people out of Egypt, out of slavery, all of a sudden their back is up against what? The Red Sea, or some translations call it the Reed Sea. It's the same word. And so it's as if the author is pointing us back to this one moment in history where everything seems done for. 
Except for what? Except for apart from a special intervention, which is what God does. He opens up, somehow, amazingly, opens up the Red Sea and they walk right through. So apart from anything like that, Jonah is a done-for person. And this is where we get to verse 6, right? It gets even more painful. He says, these weeds were wrapped around my head and I was at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. And I'm just going to stop there for a second. Okay, I just want to, I want to draw, um, draw this out. Because that word, the author is painting a picture for us here um, with, um, with Jonah, okay? So whose choice, whose choice was it to go down to Joppa? Jonah's, right? He boards this ship, uh, and then what does he do? So he's experiencing all of this freedom. So here he is. He's doing the Titanic pose right out the front. Freedom, this is me, everything. God has allowed me to do all of this stuff. And he's so content in his freedom that he actually chooses, same word, to go down into the belly of the fish, right? This belly of the fish. He goes down. So it's the same word. He goes down to Joppa, down into the belly of the fish. So the, the author is helping us understand this, right? And so then now, now that Jonah is outside, outside of the boat, he, he just continues to go down, 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 all the way to the roots of the mountains. And this isn't the story that we normally think of when we think of Jonah. We think of the Jonah, the rescue, just being right on the top of the water, and yet here he is, sinking, 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 over and over, all the way down to the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea, which is crazy to think about. Uh, and he gets to the bottom here. He gets to this bottom, and it's like he describes, he uses the word bars. He says, it's as if there are bars over me. So you begin to picture this metaphorical thing, where, but, but the word is actual bars. So he gets all the way to the bottom, and then like this cage closes down on him. And it's as if you picture Jonah shaking at the bars as he's running out of oxygen, has nothing left to do. He's totally trapped. And so the image here that the author is trying to help us understand is that not only is this a consequence of our sin, it's also, what, a picture of our total inability to escape sin. It's about total depravity. There's nothing that we can do to ever earn love from God apart from special intervention or special divine intervention. And so what, what he says here in this moment is that it feels like forever. This is how he describes it. And so there are these long periods of time, which again is a picture of our total inability uh, to, to escape from our sin. Like there's nothing that we can do to escape our sin. And so what's true for us as believers is that the deeper this process goes, guess what? The harder and more painful the process of God weaning us off of our sin. But is it good? Absolutely. It's wonderfully good for us because it's what we need, but it's painful. So the, the deeper I go, the more painful that is. And as I'm sinking, as Jonah would have been sinking, you think about all of the different things that you might think of in your own life, all of the things that you devoted time and energy to in life, and all of those things, whether it's New cars, boats, jobs, the cabin, it's, it's a college career, it's athletics, it's, you know, all those things. Whatever it is, nothing is able to reach its hand down and save you. 
And so as you're sinking, this sinking realization happens for each of us. And so for Jonah, he's got to realize that the freedom, all of the things that he pursued in his freedom that he thought would bring him life are actually the very things that what? Bring him death. And that's the story. That's how this works. And so there's these long periods of time that God often allows us to be in, these dark spaces, these dark moments that we're going through. And it's this, I have a friend who says this, I love this, he calls this a severe mercy. It's God's way of using severe things to help you understand his unfailing and steadfast love in the only way that we actually can. Because when everything else is removed, after I've gone through the entire refrigerator and scoured for everything, and the last thing for there to be is Yahweh's grace, that's when it's so good. That's when it's so great. It's so, so, so good. And so the beauty of the story, right, as we remember, is that Jonah deserved death, but instead he gets deliverance. And so we don't know how far Jonah had to sink, but he did sink. So this version of the whale isn't right, but this version of the whale down here is. And so in some way, shape, or form, we have to acknowledge for us the depravity of our own story, the depravity of our sin. And that's what the author and what God, I think, is trying to communicate is that whether we are like Jonah in this way or not, we have to understand the totality of our brokenness, the totality of that, right? So here's the thing. So apart from special intervention, Jonah is gone. He's a goner. And yet God sends this redemptive act, this redemptive fish that swallows him. And it's an act of God's grace that is saving him from death and prolonging his life so that God can continue to accomplish what he wants to do. So I want to give you three things at this point in the story because I think these things are really helpful. And they're not in your notes, they're not on the slides, and so if you want them, you'll have to write them down. The first one is this, is that wherever, wherever you're at in your sin, and your rebellion, and your rejection, which we all are, by the way, there's no one who escapes that. So wherever you're at in that, whether you are in, in Joppa, just getting on the boat, maybe you're on the boat, maybe you're doggy paddling, uh, maybe you're in the midst of sinking, maybe you're at your absolute lowest that you've ever, ever been. Maybe that's you. Wherever you're at, here is the truth. Wherever you're at, so whether here or here, right, or here or here or here, at each of those places is the cross, right? So wherever your sin intersects with God's grace, that's where the gospel is. So whether it's shallow or deep, the cross fits it perfectly. So wherever your, wherever your sin meets and intersects with God's grace, right, that's where the gospel is. The second, the second thing is this, is that I can really only understand the depth of God's grace to the degree that I understand my own sin. So if I think that my sin is up here, right, not God's, God's cross, the gospel, it meets me right there. But if it's this shallow, guess what? My view of God's grace is going to be this shallow. 
until I experience something deeper and harder like down here or until God helps me understand the total depth of my brokenness. So for me, in my own life, whether or not I'm here or here, what I need in my life, what each of us needs in our life is a level of authenticity. To say, wherever I'm at in this process, I need to be authentic about it because that's, that's where my understanding of the gospel is. And here's the last thing, the third thing, um, is that the deeper that I go, right, the deeper that this actually goes, I, I love this, the deeper I go, the simpler the truth is that I have to believe. Because when Jonah is up here or over here, he's living in a complicated world. Because when God says, here's what I want you to do, I want you to go over here, he's like, man, I don't really want to, what about that, what about this, what about that, what about that? And he lives in his freedom. But when God takes him down, when he gets to the very most bottom broken place in his life, where the gospel intersects in that moment, what we're talking about is the gospel. So this, okay, I just totally lost my train of thought. So I want to come back and double circuit. The deeper that go, the simpler the truth is. So at the very bottom of my life, the thing that I have to know is, does God forgive me? And do I believe it? That's it. The simpler the truth is, the deeper I have to go. And when, when, I, when I turn to God in this moment of confession, guess what? It says that God brings me back up. He brought up my life back from the pit. And that's the gospel. Wherever we're at, wherever we are, he meets us in that moment and brings us back up to the top. Check this out in verse 7, just to sum and wrap up. 7 through 9, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. And right, that's what we know, like, as he ends this poem, right, he's saying, gosh, God, I get it, Lord, I, I get it, is that oftentimes the really only time when I really remember you is when my life is actually fainting away. And so verse 8, he says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. So the very thing that he was pursuing, these, idol, these idols, or the things that he thought would bring him life, he says that in doing that, in pursuing the life that idols bring, guess what? I'm actually end up forsaking the very thing that does bring life, which is God's steadfast love, which then fosters a a state of thanksgiving, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. And there's this really, really short verse that really sums up so much of the gospel. Salvation belongs to the Lord. By the way, the word salvation uh, in Hebrew is where we get Jesus, Yeshua, God saves. And so it's really this reminder and this pointing that salvation is ultimately in its most permanent and glorious form is about the person and the works of Jesus that he accomplished on the cross and through his resurrection. And so it's in this space, right? It's in these in-between verses, between verse one and 10, is that something really powerful happens. And we go back to that verse five, and he says what? He says that this is, he's talking about his God. This is my God. There's the theological shift in his heart that he moves away from the intellectual and he goes to this personal, experiential moment with Jesus, with, with his creator, and that's what happens. And so instead of, here's my suggestion, instead of us being crammed into a bag, here's the most natural and easy part of the process. What if instead of being crammed into a bag, we allowed ourselves to do this? And we went onto our knees ourselves in humility and worship 
of who God is before well knowing that wherever my sin is, God's grace will meet me there. And it's in this space, right? The Lord spoke to the fish and it vomits Jonah back up on dry land. And that's the end of the story for chapter two. And we'll enter into chapter three next week, the first five verses. But I wanna invite the worship team to come on up as we're gonna sing a song here. But as they do, I wanna ask you this question. Maybe, um, maybe you feel like you're in your deepest, darkest spot in life. Maybe it's not even your, your, your space. Maybe you feel like somehow somebody dragged you in with you, um, and all of a sudden you're a part of this deep, dark environment. Maybe you feel like you're sinking. Maybe you feel like you're treading water. Maybe you feel like God has spoken to you and yet you just continue to disobey and to go the wrong way. Or maybe you're somewhere over here. Or maybe you're not anywhere, but somehow you know people that are there. So wherever you're at, I hope the story really resonates with you. And I wanna ask these last, um, these last couple of questions. Um, and the first one is this. I broke them into Cave Table Road because I think this will help us as we go out of here. Remember, what happens here leaves here. And so the cave, here's my question. Uh, Where does God's grace need to intersect with your life today? Very simple, but it requires a level of authenticity that you say, this is what's really happening in my life. This is the process. We can't just speak generically or vaguely about these things. The table is to share something authentic about your struggle with someone else this week. How can you take that challenge and go? So whatever that is, wherever that grace needs to intersect with your story, would you go talk about that with somebody else? And the last one is just this. You know, would you ask somebody um, this, this week who maybe doesn't know Jesus about their story, about their struggle, and maybe you can pray for them? Let's pray. Father, as we end and wrap up our time this morning, Lord, uh, we come to you. And we are, we are just reminded and with grateful hearts, with thankful hearts, even with the song we're about to sing, uh, we are reminded of the goodness of your, of your unfailing, steadfast love that, that meets us wherever we're at in life. Over and over and over, you meet us in the shallow waters and in the deep waters. And so some of us may feel like we are in the belly of the fish right now. And so Lord, if that's true, Lord, wherever we're at in this process, would we embrace the fish? Would we embrace the process knowing that what you're doing is allowing us to taste the goodness of who you are that will send us in right direction as instruments of your grace? Lord, we love you with full hearts and we worship you. Amen.